Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with post-scarcity anarchism, the second section of the book titled Listen Marxist, that seeks to more directly address Marxists, especially ones that might not totally align with anarchist theory. It is not massively won me over so far, but we've got some more to read, so let's see what else he has to say. The Myth of the Party Social revolutions are not made by parties, groups, or cadres. They occur as the result of deep-seated historic forces and contradictions that activate large sections of the population. They occur not merely because the masses find the existing society intolerable, as Trotsky argued, but also because of the tension between the actual and the possible, between what is and what could be. Abject misery alone does not produce revolutions. More often than not, it produces an aimless demoralization. Or worse, a private, personalized struggle to survive. The Russian Revolution of 1917 weighs on the brain of the living like a nightmare because it was largely the product of intolerable conditions, of a devastating imperialistic war. Whatever dreams it had were virtually destroyed by an even bloodier civil war, by famine, and by treachery. What emerged from the revolution were the ruins not of an old society, but of whatever hopes existed to achieve a new one. The Russian Revolution failed miserably. It replaced Tsarism by state capitalism. Footnote 50. The Bolsheviks were the tragic victims of their own ideology and paid with their lives in great numbers during the purges of the 30s. To attempt to acquire any unique wisdom from this scarcity revolution is ridiculous. What we can learn from the revolutions of the past is what all revolutions have in common and their profound limitations compared with the enormous possibilities that are now open to us. The most striking feature of the past revolutions is that they began spontaneously. Whether one chooses to examine the opening phases of the French Revolution of 1789, the revolutions of 1848, the Paris Commune, the 1905 revolution in Russia, the overthrow of the Tsar in 1917, the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, or the French General Strike of 1968, the opening stages are generally the same. A period of ferment explodes spontaneously into a mass upsurge. Whether the upsurge is successful or not depends on its resoluteness and on whether the troops go over to the people. The glorious party, when there is one, almost invariably lags behind the events. In February 1917, the Petrograd Organization of the Bolsheviks opposed the calling of strikes precisely on the eve of the revolution which was destined to overthrow the Tsar. Fortunately, the workers ignored the Bolshevik directives and went on strike anyway. In the events which followed, no one was more surprised by the revolution than the revolutionary parties, including the Bolsheviks. As the Bolshevik leader Keyurov recalled, quote, Absolutely no guiding initiatives from the party were felt. 
The Petrograd Committee had been arrested and the representative from the Central Committee, Comrade Shlepnikov, was unable to give any directives for the coming day. End quote. Citation 30. Perhaps this was fortunate. Before the Petrograd Committee was arrested, its evaluation of the situation and its own role had been so dismal that, had the workers followed its guidance, it is doubtful that the revolution would have occurred when it did. The same kind of story could be told of the upsurges which preceded 1917 and those which followed. To cite only the most recent, the student uprising and general strike in France during May to June 1968. There is a convenient tendency to forget that close to a dozen tightly centralized Bolshevik-type organizations existed in Paris at this time. It is rarely mentioned that virtually every one of these vanguard groups disdained the student uprising up to May the 7th when the street fighting broke out in earnest. The Trotskyist Jeunesse Communiste Révolutionnaire was a notable exception and it merely coasted along, essentially following the initiatives of the March 22nd movement. Footnote 51. Up to May the 7th, all the Maoist groups criticized the student uprising as peripheral and unimportant. The Trotskyist Fédération des Étudiants Révolutionnaires regarded it as adventuristic and tried to get the students to leave the barricades on May the 10th. The Communist Party, of course, played a completely treacherous role. Far from leading the popular movement, the Maoists and Trotskyists were its captives throughout. Ironically, most of these Bolshevik groups used manipulative techniques shamelessly in the Sorbonne Student Assembly in an effort to control it, introducing a disruptive atmosphere that demoralized the entire body. Finally, to complete the irony, all of these Bolshevik groups were to babble about the need for centralized leadership when the popular movement collapsed, a movement that occurred despite their directives and often in opposition to them. Revolutions and uprisings worthy of any note not only have an initial phase that is magnificently anarchic, but also tend spontaneously to create their own forms of revolutionary self-management. The Parisian sections of 1793-94 to were the most remarkable forms of self-management to be created by any of the social revolutions in history. Footnote 52. More familiar in form were the councils, or Soviets, which the Petrograd workers established in 1905. Although less democratic than the sections, the councils were to reappear in a number of later revolutions. Still another form of revolutionary self-management were the factory committees which the anarchists established in the Spanish Revolution of 1936. Finally, the sections reappeared as student assemblies and action committees in the May-June uprising and general strike in Paris in 1968. Footnote 53. At this point, we must ask what role the revolutionary party plays in all these developments. In the beginning, as we have seen, it tends to have an emancipatory function, not a vanguard role. Where it exercises influence, it tends to slow down the flow of events, not coordinate the revolutionary forces. 
this is not accidental. The party is structured along hierarchical lines that reflect the very society it professes to oppose. Despite its theoretical pretensions, it is a bourgeois organism, a miniature state, with an apparatus and a cadre whose function it is to seize power, not dissolve power. Rooted in the pre-revolutionary period, it assimilates all the forms, techniques, and mentality of bureaucracy. Its membership is schooled in obedience and in the preconceptions of a rigid dogma, and is taught to revere the leadership. The party's leadership, in turn, is schooled in habits born of command, authority, manipulation, and egomania. This situation is worsened when the party participates in parliamentary elections. In election campaigns, the Vanguard Party models itself completely on existing bourgeois forms and even acquires the paraphernalia of the electoral party. The situation assumes truly critical proportions when the party acquires large presses, costly headquarters, and a large inventory of centrally controlled periodicals, and develops a paid apparatus. In short, a bureaucracy with vested material interests. As the party expands, the distance between the leadership and the ranks invariably increases. Its leaders not only become personages, they lose contact with the living situation below. The local groups, which know their own immediate situation better than any remote leader, are obliged to subordinate their insights to directives from above. The leadership, lacking any direct knowledge of local problems, responds sluggishly and prudently. Although it stakes out a claim to the larger view, to greater theoretical competence, the competence of the leadership tends to diminish as one ascends the hierarchy of command. The more one approaches the level where the real decisions are made, the more conservative is the nature of the decision-making process the more bureaucratic and extraneous are the factors which come into play, the more considerations of prestige and retrenchment supplant creativity, imagination, and a disinterested dedication to revolutionary goals. The party becomes less efficient from a revolutionary point of view the more it seeks efficiency by means of hierarchy, cadres, and centralization. Although everyone marches in step, the orders are usually wrong, especially when events begin to move rapidly and take unexpected turns, as they do in all revolutions. The party is efficient in only one respect, in moulding society in its own hierarchical image if the revolution is successful. It recreates bureaucracy, centralization, and the state. It fosters the bureaucracy, centralization, and the state. It fosters the very social conditions which justify this kind of society. Hence, instead of withering away, the state controlled by the glorious party preserves the very conditions which necessitate the existence of a state, and a party to guard it. On the other hand, this kind of party is extremely vulnerable in periods of repression. The bourgeoisie has only to grab its leadership to destroy virtually the entire movement. With its leaders in prison or in hiding, the party becomes paralyzed. 
The obedient membership has no one to obey and tends to flounder. Demoralization sets in rapidly. The party decomposes not only because of the repressive atmosphere, but also because of its poverty of inner resources. The foregoing account is not a series of hypothetical inferences, it is a composite sketch of all the mass Marxian parties of the past century, the Social Democrats, the Communists, and the Trotskyist party of Ceylon, the only mass party of its kind. To claim that these parties fail to take their Marxian principles seriously merely conceals another question. Why did this failure happen in the first place? The fact is, these parties were co-opted into bourgeois society because they were structured along bourgeois lines. The germ of treachery existed in them from birth. The Bolshevik party was spared this fate between 1904 and 1917 for only one reason. It was an illegal organization during most of the years leading up to the revolution. The party was continually being shattered and reconstituted with the result that, until it took power, it never really hardened into a fully centralised, bureaucratic, hierarchical machine. Moreover, it was riddled by factions. The intensely factional atmosphere persisted throughout 1917 into the Civil War. Nevertheless, the Bolshevik leadership was ordinarily extremely conservative, a trait that Lenin had to fight throughout 1917 first in his efforts to reorient the Central Committee against the Provisional Government, the famous conflict over the April Theses, later in driving the Central Committee toward insurrection in October. In both cases, he threatened to resign from the Central Committee and bring his views to, quote, the lower ranks of the party, end quote. In 1918, factional disputes over the issue of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty became so serious that the Bolsheviks nearly split into two warring communist parties. Oppositional Bolshevik groups like the Democratic Centralists and the Workers' Opposition waged bitter struggles within the party throughout 1919 and 1920 not to speak of oppositional movements that developed within the Red Army over Trotsky's propensity for centralization. The complete centralization of the Bolshevik party, the achievement of Leninist unity as it was to be called later, did not occur until 1921, when Lenin succeeded in persuading the Tenth Party Congress to ban factions. By this time, most of the White Guards had been crushed, and the foreign interventionists had withdrawn their troops from Russia. It cannot be stressed too strongly that the Bolsheviks tended to centralize their party to the degree that they became isolated from the working class. This relationship has rarely been investigated in latter-day Leninist circles, although Lenin was honest enough to admit it. The story of the Russian Revolution is not merely the story of the Bolshevik party and its supporters, Beneath the veneer of official events described by Soviet historians, there was another, more basic development. 
the spontaneous movement of the workers and revolutionary peasants, which later clashed sharply with the bureaucratic policies of the Bolsheviks. With the overthrow of the Tsar in February 1917, workers in virtually all the factories of Russia spontaneously established factory committees, staking out an increasing claim on industrial operations. In June 1917, an all-Russian conference of factory committees was held in Petrograd, which called for the, quote, organization of thorough control by labor over production and distribution, end quote. The demands of this conference are rarely mentioned in Leninist accounts of the Russian Revolution, despite the fact that the conference aligned itself with the Bolsheviks. Trotsky, who describes the factory committees as, quote, the most direct and indubitable representation of the proletariat in the whole country, end quote, deals with them peripherally in his massive three-volume history of the revolution. Yet, so important were these spontaneous organisms of self-management that Lenin, despairing of winning the Soviets in the summer of 1917, was prepared to jettison the slogan, quote, all power to the Soviets, for, quote, all power to the factory committees, end quote. This demand would have catapulted the Bolsheviks into a completely anarcho-syndicalist position, although it is doubtful that they would have remained there very long. With the October Revolution, all the factory committees seized control of the plants, ousting the bourgeoisie and completely taking control of industry. In accepting the concept of workers' control, Lenin's famous decree of November 14, 1917, merely acknowledged an accomplished fact. The Bolsheviks dared not oppose the workers at this early date. But they began to whittle down the power of the factory committees. In January 1918, a scant two months after decreeing workers' control, Lenin began to advocate that the administration of the factories be placed under trade union control. The story that the Bolsheviks patiently experimented with workers' control only to find it inefficient and chaotic is a myth. Their patience did not last more than a few weeks. Not only did Lenin oppose direct workers' control within a matter of weeks after the decree of November 14th, even union control came to an end shortly after it had been established. By the summer of 1918, almost all of Russian industry had been placed under bourgeois forms of management. As Lenin put it, the, quote, revolution demands, precisely in the interests of socialism, that the masses unquestionably obey the single will of the leaders of the labor process. End quote. Footnote 54. Thereafter, workers' control was denounced not only as inefficient, chaotic, and impractical, but also as petty bourgeois. The left communist Osinski bitterly attacked all of these spurious claims and warned the party, quote, Socialism and socialist organization must be set up by the proletariat itself, or they will not be set up at all. Something else will be set up. State capitalism. Citation 31. The left communist Osinski bitterly attacked all of these spurious claims and warned the party, quote, 
Socialism and socialist organization must be set up by the proletariat itself, or they will not be set up at all. Something else will be set up. State capitalism. End quote. Citation 31. In the interests of socialism, the Bolshevik party elbowed the proletariat out of every domain it had conquered by its own efforts and initiative. The party did not coordinate the revolution or even lead it. It dominated it. First, workers' control and later union control were replaced by an elaborate hierarchy as monstrous as any structure that existed in pre-revolutionary times. As later years were to demonstrate, Osinski's prophecy became reality. The problem of who is to prevail, the Bolsheviks or the Russian masses, was by no means limited to factories. The issue reappeared in the countryside as well as the cities. A sweeping peasant war had buoyed up the movement of the workers. Contrary to official Leninist accounts, the agrarian upsurge was by no means limited to a redistribution of the land into private plots. In the Ukraine, Peasants influenced by the anarchist militias of Nestor Makhno and guided by the communist maxim, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, end quote, established a multitude of rural communes. Elsewhere, in the North and in Soviet Asia, several thousand of these organisms were established, partly on the initiative of the left social revolutionaries and in large measure as a result of traditional collectivist impulses which stemmed from the Russian village, the Mir. It matters little whether these communes were numerous or embraced large numbers of peasants. The point is that they were authentic popular organisms, the nuclei of a moral and social spirit that ranged far above the dehumanizing values of bourgeois society. The Bolsheviks frowned upon these organisms from the very beginning and eventually condemned them. To Lenin, the preferred, the more socialist, form of agricultural enterprise was represented by the state farm, an agricultural factory in which the state owned the land and farming equipment, appointing managers who hired peasants on a wage basis. One sees in these attitudes toward workers' control and agricultural communes the essentially bourgeois spirit and mentality that permeated the Bolshevik party, a spirit and mentality that emanated not only from its theories, but also from its corporate mode of organization. In December 1918, Lenin launched an attack against the communes on the pretext that peasants were being forced to enter them. Actually, little if any coercion was used to organize these communistic forms of self-management. As Robert G. Wesson, who studied the Soviet communes in detail, concludes, quote, Those who went into communes must have done so largely of their own volition. End quote. Citation 32. The communes were not suppressed, but their growth was discouraged until Stalin merged the entire development into the forced collectivization drives of the late 20s and early 30s. By 1920, the Bolsheviks had isolated themselves from the Russian working class and peasantry. Taken together, the elimination of workers' control, the suppression of the Maknovtsi, 
the restrictive political atmosphere in the country, the inflated bureaucracy, and the crushing material poverty inherited from the Civil War years generated a deep hostility toward Bolshevik rule. With the end of hostilities, a movement surged up from the depths of Russian society for a third revolution, not to restore the past, as the Bolsheviks claimed, but to realize the very goals of freedom, economic as well as political, that had rallied the masses around the Bolshevik program of 1917. The new movement found its most conscious form in the Petrograd proletariat and among the Kronstadt sailors. It also found expression in the party. The growth of anti-centralist and anarcho-syndicalist tendencies among the Bolsheviks reached a point where a block of oppositional groups oriented toward these issues gained 124 seats at a Moscow provincial conference, as against 154 for supporters of the Central Committee. On March 2, 1921, the Red Sailors of Kronstadt rose in open rebellion, raising the banner of a third revolution of the toilers. The Kronstadt program centered around demands for free elections to the Soviets, freedom of speech and press for the anarchists and the left socialist parties, free trade unions, and the liberation of all prisoners who belonged to socialist parties. The most shameless stories were fabricated by the Bolsheviks to account for this uprising, acknowledged in later years as brazen lies. The revolt was characterized as a white guard plot, despite the fact that the great majority of Communist Party members in Kronstadt joined the sailors, precisely as communists, in denouncing the party leaders as betrayers of the October Revolution. As Robert Vincent Daniels observes in his study of Bolshevik oppositional movements, quote, Ordinary communists were indeed so unreliable that the government did not depend on them either in the assault on Kronstadt itself or in keeping order in Petrograd, where Kronstadt's hopes for support chiefly rested. The main body of troops employed were Czechists and officer cadets from Red Army training schools. The final assault on Kronstadt was led by the top officialdom of the Communist Party. A large group of delegates to the 10th Party Congress was rushed from Moscow for this purpose. End quote. Citation 33. So weak was the regime internally that the elite had to do its own dirty work. Even more significant than the Kronstadt Revolt was the strike movement that developed among Petrograd workers a movement that sparked the uprising of the sailors. Leninist histories do not recount this critically important development. The first strikes broke out in the Trobochny factory on February 23, 1921. Within a matter of days, the movement swept one factory after another, until by February 28, the famous Pudlov Works, the crucible of the revolution, went on strike. Not only were economic demands raised, the workers raised distinctly political ones, anticipating all the demands that were to be raised by the Kronstadt soldiers a few days later. On February 24th, the Bolsheviks declared a state of siege in Petrograd and arrested the strike leaders, suppressing the workers' demonstrations with officer cadets. 
The fact is, the Bolsheviks did not merely suppress a sailor's mutiny, they crushed the working class itself. It was at this point that Lenin demanded the banning of factions in the Russian Communist Party. Centralization of the party was now complete, and the way was paved for Stalin. We have discussed these events in detail because they lead to a conclusion that the latest crop of Marxist-Leninists tend to avoid. The Bolshevik party reached its maximum degree of centralization in Lenin's day not to achieve a revolution or suppress a white guard counter-revolution, but to effect a counter-revolution of its own against the very social forces it professed to represent. Factions were prohibited, and a monolithic party created not to prevent a capitalist restoration, but to contain a mass movement of workers for Soviet democracy and social freedom. The Lenin of 1921 stood opposed to the Lenin of 1917. Thereafter, Lenin simply floundered. This man, who above all sought to anchor the problems of his party in social contradictions, found himself literally playing an organizational numbers game, in a last-ditch attempt to arrest the very bureaucratization he had himself created. There is nothing more pathetic and tragic than Lenin's last years. Paralyzed by a simplistic body of Marxist formulas, he can think of no better countermeasures than organizational ones. He proposes the formation of the Workers' and Peasants' Inspection to correct bureaucratic reformations in the party and state, and this body falls under Stalin's control and becomes highly bureaucratic in its own right. Lenin then suggests that the size of the Workers' and Peasants' Inspection be reduced and that it be merged with the Control Commission. He advocates enlarging the Central Committee. Thus, it rolls along this body to be enlarged, that one to be merged with another, still a third to be modified or abolished. The strange ballet of organizational forms continues up to his very death, as though the problem could be resolved by organizational means. As Mosh Lewin, an obvious admirer of Lenin, admits, the Bolshevik leader, quote, approached the problems of government more like a chief executive of a strictly elitist turn of mind. He did not apply methods of social analysis to the government and was content to consider it purely in terms of organizational methods. End quote. Citation 34. If it is true that in the bourgeois revolutions the phrase went beyond the content, in the Bolshevik revolution the forms replaced the content. The Soviets replaced the workers and their factory committees. The party replaced the Soviets. The Central Committee replaced the party. And the Political Bureau replaced the Central Committee. In short, means replaced ends. This incredible substitution of form for content is one of the most characteristic traits of Marxism-Leninism. In France, during the May-June events, all the Bolshevik organizations were prepared to destroy the Sorbonne Student Assembly in order to increase their influence and membership. Their principal concern was not the revolution or, or the authentic social forms created by the students, but the growth of their own parties. Only one force could have arrested the growth of bureaucracy in Russia, a social force. 
had the Russian proletariat and peasantry succeeded in increasing the domain of self-management through the development of viable factory committees, rural communes, and free Soviets, the history of the country might have taken a dramatically different turn. There could be no question that the failure of socialist revolutions in Europe after the First World War led to the isolation of the revolution in Russia. The material poverty of Russia, coupled with the pressure of the surrounding capitalist world, clearly militated against the development of a socialist or a consistently libertarian society. But by no means was it ordained that Russia had to develop along state capitalist lines. Contrary to Lenin's and Trotsky's initial expectations, the revolution was defeated by internal forces, not by invasion of armies from abroad. Had the movement from below restored the initial achievements of the revolution in 1917, a multifaceted social structure might have developed. Based on workers' control of industry, on a freely developing peasant economy and agriculture, and on a living interplay of ideas, programs, and political movements. At the very least, Russia would not have been imprisoned in totalitarian chains, and Stalinism would not have poisoned the world revolutionary movement, paving the way for fascism and the Second World War. The development of the Bolshevik Party, however, precluded this development, Lenin's or Trotsky's good intentions notwithstanding. By destroying the power of the factory committees in industry, and by crushing the Maknovtsi, the Petrograd workers and the Kronstadt sailors, the Bolsheviks virtually guaranteed the triumph of the Russian bureaucracy over Russian society. The centralized party, a completely bourgeois institution, became the refuge of counter-revolution in its most sinister form. This was covert counter-revolution that draped itself in the red flag and the terminology of Marx. Ultimately, what the Bolsheviks suppressed in 1921 was not an ideology or a white guard conspiracy, but an elemental struggle of the Russian people to free themselves of their shackles and to take control of their own destiny. Footnote 55. For Russia, this meant the nightmare of Stalinist dictatorship. For the generation of the 30s, it meant the horror of fascism and the treachery of the communist parties in Europe and the United States. And that is going to do it for this week. I definitely have some thoughts about this section, but next time we will be finishing the first huge chunk of Listen Marxist, so I think we can get into a little bit more then. All I will say now is, really glad that I read Russia and Revolution beforehand because I have some informed thoughts about what was said in this section. But if you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also support the network at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping and get lots of bonus podcasts on there too. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.